The Macro View, episode 33. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. All right, folks, so another great series of episodes coming up in tonight's and the next two. So in this three-part series, we will be discussing the origin of money. In order to do so, tonight we're going to start by discussing what money is, the problem that money solves, and some common misconceptions about how money emerged and began being used. So first of all, what is money? Isn't it just green pieces of paper that we're all uh, able to use to pay for things with because, you know, the government says so. You know, obviously, that's sort of a childish and naive notion. Money is a medium of exchange. Now, the difference between money proper and other forms of mediums of exchange is that money is a universally accepted medium of exchange. The difference between a universally accepted medium of exchange and just any general medium of exchange is that you can basically use it anywhere. Now, the term universally accepted can be a little bit ambiguous. So let's tackle that first. One can make the argument, well, you know, U.S. dollars aren't universally accepted. And it would obviously be true across the entire globe. The term universally accepted typically refers to a specific geographical region, a small nation or a large country, Or in the case of the internet, combined with many intermediaries, one could deem universally accepted that which is accepted by legitimate stores selling internationally around the world on the World Wide Web. So in the U.S., we do have what are known as legal tender laws, which designate the U.S. dollar the legal money. In other words, it's the only currency or the only money in which you can pay your taxes or in which you can hold on deposit at U.S. banks. So on the internet, however, there are obviously multiple competitive monies. Somebody could buy something from Europe in China with euros, or somebody could buy something from the U.S. in Japan with dollars, and there would be an intermediary that would make the switch to what that country would would be using as a internet, or, or excuse me, a universally accepted medium of exchange. And also, obviously, one could open an offshore account with fairly little effort and hold multiple monies at the same time. And further, there are now what we have come to designate as cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin, that in certain marketplaces, and if attempting to accomplish certain goals with, with the use of this money, it could certainly be deemed universally accepted. So money isn't universally accepted medium of exchange using the term universally accepted fairly lightly, but why does it exist? So when we get back from our first break, we will dive into the problem that money solves. But first, I have to introduce listeners to an extremely valuable resource that each and every one of you really ought to check out. You owe it to yourselves, folks. So we'll be right back. All right, folks. So I know most, if not all of my listeners are big believers in the free market. Some of my listeners may, from time to time, find themselves stumped by a statist. That's got to stop today, folks. We cannot let them embarrass us with pro-government intervention bumper sticker taglines and anti-free market memes. We need every single one of you to be able to clearly, concisely, and convincingly burn the statist strawmen. There's a resource for that. It's Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. 
You can sign up today and they have three different levels. Basic, Basic Plus, and Master. With the Master membership in particular, you'll gain the equivalent knowledge of if you were to take a PhD program in libertarian thought, if there were such a thing at any of the various youth indoctrination centers that we call universities. So go and sign up today and begin taking courses such as an introduction to logic, the history of economic thought, Austrian economics step-by-step, John Maynard Keynes' system and its fallacies, a ton of U.S. and Western civilization history courses, freedom's progress, the history of political thought, and much, much more. To learn more, go to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. Once you've completed the master course, you're guaranteed to be better prepared to help me spread the logic of liberty. All right, we're back. So what is the problem that money solves? The money solves the problem that's known as the double coincidence of wants problem. Now, the double coincidence of wants problem is an inherent problem that's found in a barter economy. So think of yourself in the ancient world before there's any money and you happen to be a sheep herder, a common biblical profession. So you have a sheep that you're going to take to market to sell to somebody who wants, let's say, mutton meat. And you have all the sheep's wool, which you sheared off before taking it to market. So in return for the sheep and the sheep's wool, you want to get some grains, some fruit, some wine, and then some wood to start a fire with so that you can turn the grains into some flatbread. Instead of having to just find someone with grains, someone with fruits, and someone with wine, and someone with wood, absent money in a barter economy, you'd have to find one person or two people in the case where you have both the sheep and its wool that has the combination of goods that you want in the quantity that you expect and at the same time wants sheep and or sheep's wool in order to trade and make this trade happen to acquire your goods. This is quite likely going to be a very insufferable task. So you have to go stand to stand at the market. You have to find out what the stand has, hope that they have all that you want and are willing to accept the sheep and the sheep's wool in return for not only what you want, but the quantity that you want. Now, the likelihood of this happening is very, very low. The alternative is you could possibly trade the sheep with one person for an excess quantity, a quantity above and beyond the quantity that you actually want of one of the goods that you want. So let's say you find one person, let's say this person has wine and they want sheep and its wool and are willing to give you six large bottles of wine for the sheep and two large bottles of wine for its wool. With no hope in sight for finding a single buyer of your goods that can return, that can in return provide you with all the goods in the quantity that you want, you accept this deal believing it would be easier to trade one or two bottles of wine at a time for the grains, the fruit, and the wood. But let's say the person with the fruit doesn't want the wine. They can make wine themselves out of the fruit. The person with the grain, on the other hand, is willing to accept four bottles of wine for three times the amount of grains that you want. Now, being wise, you've negotiated with the fruit provider and know that they're willing to accept one of the units of grains for the quantity of fruit that you desire. Now, it's taken a lot of effort to finally end up with just three of the four items that you desired. 
you still haven't traded for the wood. And you have two times the amount of grain that you would have preferred to have. And you have a lot more wine than you would have preferred to have. You have, Let's say that you wanted two bottles of wine. You have four bottles of wine. So now lastly, you come across the person that has the wood. And you really need the wood. Otherwise, you can't cook the bread that you want to cook. But you run in to just one more snag in your process of trying to find the goods that you want. The firewood seller doesn't want grains. They want wine. Now, they want not just one bottle of wine or two bottles of wine, but they want three bottles of wine for the wood that they're going to provide in return. Now, you expect it when coming to market to bring home, let's say, two bottles of wine. But if you really want the wood, if you don't want your grains to go to waste, you now have to give up one of the bottles of wine that you wanted to take home, and you have to take home now two times the amount of grain that you desired. Now, this thought experiment describes in detail the problem that money solves, the double coincidence of want prob- wants problem in a barter economy. But there's another problem that money solves. Now, when you get into an advanced society, the problem that money solves is what we now know as the calculation problem. So in a barter economy, one might know generally what, con- commodity, what quantities of a certain commodity uh, exchange for what quantities of another commodity. You know, what we would call a commodity exchange ratio. But no one person has the brain power or the omnipotence and omniscience to know the exact best or most economic price or ratio that they can receive for a given quantity of a given commodity at a given time in a given place. Further, to figure out if the process that you implement to produce the commodity or good you want is efficient or not, You'd have to determine all the different goods you put in to the production process, what the exchange ratio of those goods is compared to the exchange ratio of the final goods you get out of the production process, and then further, all the goods that you're able to purchase with the goods above and beyond what you have to reinvest to conduct the production process once again. So without money and money prices, calculating what we now know as profit and loss is impossible, uh, maybe highly improbable, we might say, but also very likely impossible. And there's no way of knowing whether or not you're producing efficiently until you're either able to afford something that you expected to afford, or excuse me, unable to afford something that you expected to, to afford, or you're unable to trade for all the goods needed as inputs into your production process. So you realize, okay, well, I I I must have done something wrong. I don't have enough of this final good to even get the uh, input goods that go into the production process. Now, money and money prices solves the calculation issue. So I got to get around to our second and final quick break here. But upon our return, we'll be discussing some of the more common misconceptions that go back generations and centuries regarding how money came to be then tomorrow night we will discuss how money actually came to be and on the final part of this three-part series we will discuss the current state of money here in the u.s and internationally and we will discuss cryptocurrencies briefly as well as more so we'll be right back after this quick message all right everyone so i've got another great resource for those of you that are saying andrew you know i'd love to do tom woods's master level courses on liberty classroom but I really don't have the time for that right now. I need a crash course on liberty and Austrian economics. 
Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, Donald Trump was just inaugurated and my parents or my wife or my husband or someone else I love is way over the moon. All their free market so-called convictions were tossed out. They threw the baby out with the Obamas. And now that there's a Republican in the White House, that's all that matters. I need something fast. I need something that'll get me caught up in a day or at most in a week. Well, folks, I've got you covered. If you want to learn more in a single day or in a week about economics than most people will learn in a lifetime, you're going to want to head over to Mises.org and check out their absolutely free Mises Bootcamp. In five quick lessons, you'll learn more than enough to take down any of the various absurd defenses of government interference in the economy that your Republican loved ones may launch over the next four to eight years to justify the big spending and big government and all sorts of other interferences, tariffs, whatever may come about under the Trump administration. For your convenience, you'll find a link directly to the registration page for the Mises Bootcamp on tonight's show page. Stop waiting and harness the knowledge that you need today. Okay, so we're back. So as Carl Manger points out in his essay, The Origins of Money, going all the way back to Aristotle and even before Plato, Before Aristotle, the common belief was that money, and particularly gold and silver, which served as as money and became money, or a universally accepted medium of exchange, that gold and silver became money due to government dictate, or as we might call it, fiat. So Menger goes goes, uh, in in The Origins of Money, he goes on to just absolutely destroy the flawed reasoning that fooled so many brilliant people for so long. And if you have an extra 30 or 60 minutes or so, it's not very long, I suggest you go to Mises Institute's website and download a free PDF of uh, The Origins of Money or go to Amazon and buy a copy of it in paper books. It's pretty cheap. It's very short and it's a really easy read and uh, it's very informative. It's it's beautifully written. So what Menger brilliantly pointed out was that no one person could possibly have created money because no one person could possibly know all of the exchange ratios for every pair of goods, which would be required to actually create money. Further, something that we have witnessed over and over again, the statesman that supposedly was the first to create money would have also then had to fix prices, which we know doesn't work. So price fixing creates surpluses and or shortages. And so if some authoritarian in the past tried to dictate what quantities of what commodities should exchange with a certain quantity of a universal medium of exchange, a money, the result would have been devastating. And the attempt of creating money would have failed spectacularly, as all price-fixing experiments always do. So lastly, if that had occurred, the idea of money, especially to people who did not understand the concept being imposed on them for the first time, would have rejected any future attempt of money by fiat. It would have required an omnipotent, omniscient God being to have had all the knowledge of all exchange ratios at all times in all places and the power to then freeze them in place without damaging the incentives to produce the most urgently demanded goods for consumers that prices prices dictate. So it's a cool story, but really it's just not possible. There's no one person that could have possibly created money because there's no one person that's all-powerful and all-knowing. 
So one final point. As we know from modern experiments with fiat currencies and government-dictated legal tenders with no competition, even in a highly advanced and knowledgeable society with tons of records to refer to, it's still impossible for the government to get these kinds of market mechanisms to work better than they do under a free and unhampered system of private ownership or what we call laissez-faire capital or capitalism. It is to not understand the workings of a market to assert that a wise and benevolent dictator all of a sudden came up with the idea for a universal medium of exchange and every one of his or her subjects just followed along and got in line. Now, to point a couple of things out, Karl Minger is not only the godfather, so to speak, of the Austrian school of economics, Minger also, though almost never credited for it by the mainstream, was the first to show the issues with the classical school of economics, namely to debunk the labor cost theory of value and to show that values are actually subjective. Now, Menger also, in his what should have been world-renowned principles of economics, also was the first to discover the law of diminishing marginal utility or the economic law that states the more of something you have, the less urgent wants you fill with that something, and therefore each additional unit of that something becomes less valuable to you. Now, we've discussed the theory of marginal diminishing utility briefly on past episodes, but soon enough we will have to get to an episode where we discuss exclusively what has become known as the marginal revolution started by Karl Menger and friends, and why it is that the mainstream never gives credit to the founders of the principles from which their schools were born, and how they have totally botched the basis of economic studies with so-called empiricism, which is really nothing more than a study of historical events that can never and never will be able to be replicated in a controlled environment. Well, everybody, that's all for tonight. I I really do hope you enjoyed this first episode of our three-part series on the origins of money. Now, don't forget to check out our show page if you're not already listening to tonight's episode from it. I will link to some of the resources mentioned in our break, which, by the way, you can now find links to both of them in the top right corner of the show page next to the podcast and blog links at macroviewnews.com. Also, on the show page, you'll be able to use the links or find the links and click on them to uh, to find our, our social media pages. And that way you're easily able to find us on Twitter and Facebook and follow us there so that you can get updates about the show and much, much more. And also, don't forget to subscribe on our show page so that you'll never miss an episode and will be notified via email upon the release of new episodes of The Macro View. That way you can harness the knowledge dropped here five nights a week. And lastly, but surely not least, in fact, I'd say most importantly, do not forget to share the macro view with your friends and family and with your social media networks and wherever else you feel as though it's appropriate to help me spread the logic of liberty. Don't forget to tune back in tomorrow. Take care, folks. You've been listening to the macro view. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific time to help spread the logic of liberty.